I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. A chance to stare into the void and then beyond it, to the pulsing heart of a universe alive with possibility, or at least to a reality so absurd we can only choose to laugh together. That's right, I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, stand-up comedian and Midwest existentialist, Brendan Lemon. I don't want to be in a Black Mirror episode. I don't want somebody to download my intelligence in a computer for all eternity. Like, I, I think it's I think it's a no. lot better that we have a, a finite amount of time yeah. that we have to make the best of. Brendan is going to walk us through the existential abyss, where we find out there's actually something funny about all this. It's time to intervene on behalf of humans and all living things. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. So do you ever notice you might have a conversation with some friends in which you express something about something that's going on in the world? Let's say the Israel-Palestine conflict right now. And you say your opinion. You're like, oh my gosh, this is what I think about this. And then you start to disagree or they disagree with you. And when you start talking to them about it, what becomes quickly apparent is that you actually can't agree on even a basic set of facts about what is even happening. And because of that basic set of facts is different, you start immediately having differences in the cause and effect of what happened and where things came from and why people made the decisions they were making in the first place. And as you talk with them, it seems strange. It's not just the case that you can't agree on a narrative of what happened, but it almost seems like some of the people in the conversation, including maybe you, are just reacting to whatever the last bit of information that came out actually was. You find yourself in a situation in which all of history, maybe all of narrative, both is and isn't true at the same time. That no matter what's happening, it seems to be happening in a kind of eternal present with no explanation, only reactions. And not only are there many different types of narratives that are available which could explain what we're observing in the moment, all of those seem equally plausible to one another. Well, in 2013, this phenomenon was described by Douglas Rushkoff in his book, Present Shock. 
In this book, Douglas Rushkoff outlines not just narrative collapse, but some other really strange sounding phenomena like digiphrenia and fractal noia. Now this concept of narrative collapse, I think is extremely important to understand the world we're living in today. This idea of a post narrative type of storytelling. Now, Rushkoff would say that in years past, human beings had to construct a narrative through their own senses and observations or in conversation with one another, that you would construct a narrative communally and people would basically understand what happened in the world and would be able to interpret it that way. But because we live in a time in which everything is now filtered through the internet, through all kinds of different ways, including deep fakes and edited or photoshopped things and AI creation, we no longer have the ability to really put a narrative together in the way that we used to. And now, all of these stories effectively exist post-narrative. And that world of increasing simulation is what Jean Baudrillard would call hyper-reality. That is, we're living in a type of reality divorced from our actual experience of it. Now, because of this phenomenon, Rushkoff notices that there are three basic things that are going on in media in a reaction to it. The first is that stories tend to not have consequences anymore. And in fact, he cites The Simpsons as a very good example of this. That is, nothing of consequence ever happens in the show. The family doesn't change. It's been almost 30 years. The family is exactly the same. The second is that the viewing experience itself becomes the kind of narrative. That is that you're not watching the Kardashians because it's interesting. You're watching it ironically. You're having fun watching it because you're like, look at these idiots or whatever your reaction to it is. A lot of reality TV functions from this premise. And the third is that the viewing experience becomes less about consuming the story in order to discover the resolution of the plot and more of a kind of experience of piecing together what's actually happening. And the specific example Rushkoff uses here is The Walking Dead, which is interesting because if you pick up that show at almost any point, you have to spend a bunch of time going, okay, wait, what's actually happening right now? Okay, so what, Brendan? People are consuming media differently. That's always happened. What does that matter? Great question. This becomes less theoretical and far more scary when you begin to apply this to real-world events such as the January 6th insurrection wherein the people who engaged in it were surprised that there were somehow any actual consequences for their actions. Or people, Donald Trump amongst them, watch what happened with a kind of weird, cool, collected, reserved, oh, look at this craziness that's happening, as if it wasn't actually happening in the world. And finally, an insane, continuous conversation about what actually happened that day, as if for some reason we didn't have tons and tons of evidence of exactly what happened that day. And the consequences of this are extremely grave. We can see it right now. All of the media is continuously talking about January 6th as if it was just a blip in the reality TV show of America and not a dire, insane, crazy, ridiculous, absolutely upending activity in the history of this country. It is because of narrative collapse, that is what Douglas Rushkoff would say, it is because of this increasing hyper-reality that we're in a situation in which we cannot actually agree on any narrative that happened. That is what narrative collapse is, and that is an absolutely terrifying thing for us to all now live in. That was comedian Brendan Lemon on TikTok, honoring and humbling me by bringing some of the ideas of my 2013 book, Present Shock, up into our current socio-political psycho landscape. We've been playing email tag for a decade or so, but when he explained and expanded on the idea of narrative collapse for his zillion TikTok followers, I felt not only heard, but actually relevant. There's Nothing better than an inspiring comedian, particularly one who can inspire us to see past the existential horror of our fractured narrative to 
mutual recognition and common ground that we can discover by laughing at our absurdity together. So here's my conversation with my new friend, Brendan Lemon. So you you live and operate at the intersection of existential philosophy and stand-up comedy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, if anything, is the difference between those two things? <laughs> you know... I don't, you know, that's such a good question because, uh, that's such a good question because I feel like there, I'm a, so I also am involved with the IAPH, the International Association for Philosophy of Humor. Mm. And it's funny because the way I got involved was that there's a great book by, um, John Marmish, who's a, a nihilist philosopher. And he, Basically, his theory is that your is humor as is a answer to nihilism and absurdism as as uh, Camus sort of talked about it is kind of the comedy exists in order to bring meaning to the void. Like, yeah, it's meaningless. Meaning is what you create it. There is no inherent meaning in life. So why don't we tell a couple of dick jokes and have a nice time? Like that kind of feels like a not bad way to approach. The vo- I mean, you got to do something with your time, right? So you're right. either screaming or laughing at the void, I feel like. Which is, I guess that's a kind of comedy, you know? I mean, and it's interesting because you could be laughing at the void. I mean, I'm thinking about about Jewish comedy now and Borschtbelt comedy, which is all kind of, uh, you know, uh, well, post-pogrom and post-Holocaust, that they're not laughing into the void so much as laughing into, because they believe in God and stuff, a lot of them, but they're laughing into evil, yeah. the inexplicable yeah. evil of this world that, you Well, know, the Coen brothers, I right. think, are a great example of what you're talking about, because the one of my favorite Coen brothers films is A Quiet Man, or, or a, uh, not, is it a, not A Quiet Man, a, um, a very ser- a serious mm-hmm. man, pardon me. And that movie is so good. Like the Coen brothers have such a bead on Jewish humor in a response to a kind of nihilistic center of life. Because the end of that film, if you watch that movie, I, I one time, I, it's, one, it's probably my favorite Coen brothers film. Mm. And it's amazing because I made, I forced my family to sit down and watch it once. And it's like not a very good family movie. Right. Because, because it just ends with this like, like there's a storm coming and this guy gets news that maybe he, I mean, this isn't giving anything away, I don't think, but it's like maybe something terrible is going to happen to the main character and you don't know. And then the film just ends. <laughs> like it's, and it just, you have no resolution. There's no, and for, for me, there is a kind of sublime appreciation for how life actually is in that. And like, there's a whole bunch of absurd things that happen. Like this guy's enemy dies in a random car accident in the movie. Like mm-hmm. there's just, there's no resolution to so many stories in this film. And that feels so accurate to life. And there's a kind of humor that comes along with it. They're just, they're very good at like drawing out that specific kind of like of, of right. aesthetic it's that I think is reflective of real life. And, and, you know, and it, it relates to your to your response to present shock, which is interesting because a lot of comedians and filmmakers responded to present shock yeah. over the years. I mean, present shock's the one that got you know uh, uh, Bo Burnham to start talking about me. You know, present shock's what got uh, 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 you know uh, uh, Steve Soderbergh to start talking. It's like, yeah. but but the I guess the underlying question then is: so we had 
narrative that helped us make sense of things. So I grew up, yes. you know, when I was a baby, you know, you got John F. Kennedy. We're, we're going to we're going to go to the moon. You know, we're going to stick yep. a flag in there and we will have won. You know, we're going to you're going to go, you know, we've got Martin Luther King. You know, we're going to go arm in arm down and we're going to I have a dream and we're going to get to that yeah. dream. And we have these stories about who we were and how we came. We're an immigrant family and we worked hard to get you to school oh, yeah. so you could be a doctor. Yes. Right. Which I did. Yep. But, you know, right. So you could be a what? <laughs> um, but, you know, I broke the narrative. Right. But but yeah. the stories gave us a sense of uh we knew where we were in the arc. We we used it to orient ourselves and have a sense. It 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 felt less like existential despair when you have yes. a story. So, do you feel like we we've which is real? I guess so. Present shock and digital technology and the eternal now and all that stuff that you're talking about and that I talk about, it's like really yeah. disorienting and scary, and we're kind of desperate. So we try to tie things together and do fractal noia, you know, go do create this kind of puntalist narratives. You know, people would rather believe that the the that the the World Bank and the Great Reset that there that there's a a coherent plan by an elite to eliminate three quarters of the planet with a it's virus. They yeah. rather believe yep. that than believe that nobody knows what the fuck is going on. That everybody is as clueless as Jimmy Carter in the third year of his presidency. Right? That it's all just like yeah. let's just wear sweaters <laughs> and be nice to each other. Um, I love. You know, I love so this which, so much. Which is it? In other words, so so is the narrative itself, the story, as I've believed, as Brecht believed, as I'm sure all those French guys that you've read believe, is the story yeah. a fake, almost palliative care for the existential despair and ultimate Becker death that we're all going to have? Or is the story kind of real? Narrativity and linearity is sort of real, and now we're in kind of a temporary uh, uh, inability to, to, uh, uh, you know, to, to rely on it, to find it again. Yeah. This is such a good question because you, first of all, I love your, your, the fever pitch of your, your, your neuroticism around this <laughs> is so perfectly like in tune with how I feel like we should be. I feel like there's a, somebody once told me when I got off stage that they were like, you know, it's weird because you come on stage and it's almost like the entire, subtext of your stand-up comedy set is like what the fuck <laughs> like it's <laughs> i'm like yeah dude that's kind of how i feel like a lot of the time right we don't You're even have the we don't have the even the space to get sort of george carlin angry about it or no. bill maher cynical about it we're oh, still oh God, two dude. steps before just in the ah, yes ah. <laughs> yeah what the and, and because i think that so it's speaking of we should talk about the george carlin ai special yeah. later in this conversation but it's really it's interesting, Doug, because I feel like um, you there is a you touched on something with present shock that I feel like uh, many creatives who have had our antennas up for a while could could feel but couldn't really describe, which was like there is a breakdown in the fundamental structure of our interpreted reality that that made it intelligible that we now can no longer, there is no, I can't touch ground anywhere. Right. And so the, the thing that I think is so interesting that has happened really, I mean, certainly in the, since you've written the book, but 
in the few years before the book came out, which I'm sure you were, you know, obviously very sensitive to, was it was almost like we have a seventh uh, or a sixth sense. Pardon me, a seventh sense. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Brendan. We almost have a sixth sense of it, it's almost like we have our five senses and then we have this sixth sense, which is sort of an assembled narrative that we can put together. And the weird thing is almost as if if you if a technology like glasses came into being, except except in these glasses, everything was tinted by a corporate uh structure that attempted to want you to visualize the world in a very particular way, like rose colored or, you know, amber or whatever way they decided to manufacture these glasses. It's almost as if that has screwed up our ability to make a narrative that sticks and makes sense. And I think that that inherent fracturing has caused all the symptoms that you've talked about. And it's, it's, it's really weird to try to exist in this type of reality because there doesn't, there hasn't been any narrative that does make sense because you're right. Like there was a legacy programming that came around after sort of the second world war that was, Hey, you were a part of this country. Your people came here, you know, who knows how, and now you're here. And if you work hard, you can succeed. And this is the way that we all believe. And everybody's always done this. And this is the way it's always going to be. And the weird thing about that program was that, Starting really in 1971, and then I would say throughout especially the Reagan era, that has been increasingly fractured through neoliberal policy after policy. And it's it's fascinating because it's not just true. You've done a very good job of outlining it, not just in Present Shock, which I think is a book that effectively outlines the symptoms as experienced, almost the phenomenology of of the individual experiencing living through present shock. But you've also done a very good job in your most recent book, that survival of the richest, which I, I, I just finished recently uh. that I feel like was almost an indictment of sort of the, it was almost like, okay, present shock is how we're experiencing it. But I'm, let me talk about the environment that we're now living in, in, in the world. It almost feels like that's a, a, a good description of this kind of fracturing and falling apart, uh, an inability to assemble a narrative in the world. Because what it's done is it's created a space in which self-interested, very powerful, mostly corporate entities have uh, have been able to take advantage of the gaps in in those in that right. space and what's opened right. up in that narrative. And not only have they taken advantage of the gaps, but these dudes are also victims of present shock. They are yes. the last chapter of that book, right? Yes. Which I called Apocalypto, which is that yes. world ending thing. So where does the billionaire go with Apocalypto? Survival of the richest. You upload your brain, yeah. you build a bunker, yeah. you do a thing. We but- fly off, we're gonna go to Mars. We're gonna colonize Mars. The image of that you talk about where you're like, it's almost as if they're trying to drive the car faster <laughs> than the exhaust field. I'm right. like, this is so because I don't think I think that the the situation that we live in is really pretty dire and it's pretty bad in a bunch of different ways. But the one of the worst ways is that I think a lot of the people who you are talking about in Survival of the Richest, a lot of the billionaires, people who are going to the World Economic Forum, it's a great right. I, I speak with uh, I spoke with uh, Peter Goodman, the guy who wrote uh, Davos Man. Uh-huh. And it's it's a very similar situation. These are people who truly believe that they have figured out, I mean, they're getting massive amounts of money. They've received massive amounts of wealth, tons of attention. I mean, heretofore unheard of amounts of attention and wealth, the likes of which no pharaoh in ancient Egypt had ever experienced. And they can't help but believe that they have the answers 
to all of these questions because everything around them is telling them that they do. And they really truly believe that the answers that they're going to give, which is like, hey, we just, we're going to accelerate ourselves through this process. They're completely numb to the fact that there are massive amounts of externalization costs that they're producing all the time from the endeavors that they're undertaking. And they're completely oblivious to it. That's actually worse than if they were the heads of the conspiracies that people believe that they are. Like, like it's actually worse than if they were drinking adrenochrome. <laughs> like, right. I wish that was actually the situation. That would be right. so much easier to remedy. It's simple, exactly. I mean, I still feel bad for the for the shipping containers filled of you know underage girls yes. from different countries. Yes. But yeah. at least we could find the shipping <laughs> container, open it up, go, here's the girls, there's the guy, yeah. kill that dude, free these girls, yeah. yay. You know, again, victim vanquished. We you would know. just have to go to the to the to the pizza place and open the basement. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> and do it and arrest Hillary once and for all. Exactly. But you know, and, and that harkens back though to a uh, my nostalgia for cause and effect reality, right? I yep. mean, that's it's. We lived in a world, you know. It's easy. It's easier sometimes to talk to business people about it because I'll talk to them. I'll say, okay, so you used to make a product, you'd put it on the shelves, and at the end of the quarter, you'd find out how it sold, and then you could change the product or not. Now it's like. Everything's happening in real time. Cause and effect has turned into a feedback loop where you can no longer yeah. t distinguish between the cause and the effect. I did that first. Yeah. It was in, uh, I did this 1999 documentary called Merchants of Cool, which was about yeah. the people, the I remember anthropologist marketing from <laughs> MTV. Yeah. And I was like, okay, so you're putting a camera in the closet of the kid to see what clothes he's buying so that you could know what ads to put and what to dress people on on the show so that kids will imitate it so who's yeah. watching who i remember yeah i remember <laughs> so i remember that documentary because we watched that i was i was i was, I was in, in 10th grade yeah. and we watched that documentary but i remember the moment because you were like oh i finally got it yeah they take an image of these kids and they feed it back to themselves and so because there's there's a weird kind of divorce it's this is exactly Baudrillard's like concept I think of 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 hyper reality right. in the sense that or well not this is a simulacra like right. we are we are looking at a we are looking at an object without a referent we're looking at MTV is telling you this is cool because it's showing you images of of you of yourself but you're not actually authentically the object any longer you're you're imitating the imitation right that you were doing to originally thing. begin with and, but then we we do that i mean i wrote in the 90s i wrote about uh really early the the oj simpson moment that was such a weird television moment because in la yeah people watched the white bronco in this slow police chase that <laughs> there was this white bronco escaping from police and they would see oh my gosh it's coming down near where i live they would walk out of their house and onto their own TV screen. They kind of had time oh, yeah. to do that and come back and then look at a video of themselves on the overpass where the thing is going by. And then I thought of that, you know, when you talked about um, the January I almost, wish that I, almost, I almost wish that John Baudrillard wrote an essay called the, the Denver Bronco, the, the Bronco chase did not exist. Like, I right. feel like there's something about it that feels extra like i don't know right you know, and similar to, rather to the golf him war. do it than zizek though who would go it doesn't exist and you should all die or something yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't the thing about the bronco chase was that it doesn't exist <laughs> like 
I love I that guy so much. I know, but <laughs> but you know he's gonna he's as accelerationist as anybody when it kind of comes down That's to it. True, he's a dude. little he gets a little scary. Uh, but it reminds me though that that Bronco moment of going onto the camera and then being on the TV but not knowing what you are anymore is the sort of the moment. And and I understand what the Republicans are saying when they look at the videotape of the people after they. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Break into the Capitol. They're like, what happened? What are we doing? I mean, some of them were, you know, bad guys or whatever, but most of them are just like, uh... What? <laughs> yeah. Well, they were they were like unprepared for the own for the reality of their own creation. Right. Like there's a there's a, because you 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 identify it. You do a pretty good job of identifying it in in um I think in in Survival of the Richest where you talk about like I'm I grew up I'm a I'm a huge nerd. Like uh-huh. I grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons and live action role playing. I remember dressing up like it was the oh, Middle no. Ages. And running into the woods with a with, with like fake weapons wow. and like hitting each other. So I watch it and I'm like, oh, I know what this is. This is live action role playing. These right. guys are cosplaying. They're as, LARPing. So, I look on the college yeah. campuses now and it looks like that to me. These kids, I mean, God bless them. I understand. And and you know, stop the bombing. Stop the bombing. Yes, but there there's a cosplaying attitude. Uh, or approach to it. it's like we've seen this on Twitter. Now we're going to go into the quad on our ninety thousand dollar a year school and yeah. you know and, and argue for something. And it's just like it, it's it's there's a, a role playing quality to it. Yeah. But for everybody yeah. now, yes. And 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 what an exciting narrative to get caught up in, man! What a cool identity to give yourself. Like and 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 the the thing that I think is weird is having this conversation is like slightly dangerous because what I I just want to be clear about this because what I, what I'm not saying is that every person who's like, hey, we need to you know the Palestinians need a place to need to be safe and shouldn't be bombed to innocent people or that like whatever that happens to be. I'm not saying that those things don't have merit or that people who are protesting for a fair shake for what's happening in the Middle East are wrong. That's not what I'm saying. Or even that everybody who's marching on the Capitol who feels disenfranchised from the political process is wrong either. Yeah, yeah. They, the, so that's that's what's so challenging about the 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 media and and cultural environment in which a conversation about either of those two topics has to happen. Yeah. 
is fraught with so much misunderstanding and zero space for nuance because I got in a lot of trouble because like, look, I got a lot of family members who voted Trump, were pro-Trump. I got, I got a few family members who are QAnon supporters, right? And how do you support QAnon? I, I mean, I know, but I guess I, you yeah. just participate. Full-fledged, emo- innocent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're emotionally supporting. Right. They're, they don't they're subscribe. They don't send money supporting. to QAnon yeah. Central. Okay. No, no, I don't. I hope Ron White has gotten zero of their yeah. dollars. <laughs> um, so uh, anyway, what I'm saying is that they uh, they end up like. They they end up the conversation that I wanted to have was impossible because when I, when you say hey some of the people who march on the Capitol have legitimate grievances it's almost like what people hear when you say that is like There's oh good, that was totally correct right. for them to do There's that. There's good people on both sides, right? But yeah, you exactly. Know, but on a certain level, I understand what Ron Watkins pardon me not Ron yeah, White right, Ron Watkins right, Ron Watkins <laughs> but I understand what Trump means when he says there's good people on both sides you know there's good people on every side yeah that's not that's not it the doesn't fucking mean point. guys with torches are good people right it's, yeah, it's no one is having a conversation like, right there is a there is a in order to by focusing on the by focusing on the act so i i have i'm a man with no country because on one hand i will have conversations so i make that tick you're a cis right? man with no country I'm a <laughs> straight white yeah. man with no country. Right. I, and the mustache I just the, exacerbates all of those I, things. This, this is for self-defense. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so. Yeah. So you I wouldn't get I attacked up, if you didn't have it, though. So you don't no, you wouldn't I need it. Watch out. It's a self-referential <laughs> so, thing. I, it's a, a right. It's a cybernetic feedback yes. back loop. Thank um, you. So. Uh, my uh, just like in the TikTok at the end of the TikTok, I talk about like, hey, you know, this is this is just the January sixth is like a great example of all of these things, and here's how it plays out. I have all of these people who are messaging me, being like, "This is so dumb. I can't believe you think this." And they they start equating like, B- you wouldn't say this about BLM protests. What about that? We're like, <sighs> dude, you're missing the point. Like the like whether or not like, look, we can indict you can indict the actions of people who yeah. are protesting something, but the problem is if you remove from the conversation the principles that are at stake or the things that they're talking about. You actually don't have to engage with any real concepts. Right. You can only just talk about whether or not the people who did things are right or wrong. Like whether or not racial justice is even something that is isn't it, it exists or needs to be pursued in the United States falls out of the conversation it, it completely. And the same thing is true, I think, with this January sixth thing, which is that there are the legitimate grievances that these people have. I think they accurately are aware that like a lot of them, if you look at their occupations, are all petite bourgeoisie people who are effectively like realtors and like insurance people, small business people. And like they're accurately aware that their lifestyle is about to go away because it's going to hit it's getting hit with a tidal wave of corporate like takeover for everything that they're doing. And they really do see Donald Trump and QAnon and this conspiracy as a way that explains why their lifestyle is disappearing and the worlds they're living in are changing. Now, they're wrong, I right. think. They're they're super wrong. Right. But it's, like right. but their but their grievances are real right. based on real things. Right. But it doesn't change the fact that there has there has been a pseudo event constructed in the name of real grievances and people are stepping into that pseudo event, right? Into that non, into that non real thing. And then the pseudo event ends up having violence. The people die in the pseudo event. This is not Abby Hoffman holding hands around the Pentagon, you know, trying to levitate the thing. There's there, there ends up being real. No. And you're exactly right. Like there is a, this is a real, this was a pseudo events that had real outcomes. Now I think it was Mark Fisher 
Fisher was talking about this in uh, in uh, Capitalist Realism, where he was mm. saying that in a very strange, this was it's very bizarre because in in a weird flipping of what we understand from mid century, mid twentieth century, we were we meaning the west capitalist democratic powers saw communism as creating a false reality in which people who could you know basically conspired in pseudo events that had real outcomes that i i think the exact example that fisher uses is the uh, canal that i think uh stalin had dug across like whatever part of russia that had so many people die digging of it and it was never useful it was done specifically only just to impress western democratic powers it never had any actual use value uh, the thing that's very road bizarre to is nowhere. like yeah yeah road to nowhere real people died in in order to produce these pseudo events but the the opposite is now happening in the west where pseudo events are actually killing real people which is completely bizarre and and i i have like again like i have some sympathy for this because like i have members of my family who are will have full-throated endorsements of like you have to understand like you know, the, the, these these Democrats are stealing children and they are drinking the blood of children. And it's bizarre because you can show them. I can give them a copy of Douglas Hofstetter's paranoid style in American politics yeah. and be like, please read this because you are you are echoing sentiments of 17th and, and 18th century Americans when they talk about Catholics. Like, but right. you're doing it now, except with Democrats. Right. Zero self-reference. I, I get no traction with that either. Like, so that doesn't mean it's not true this time. Or I'll show them yeah. protocols of the elders of Zion. And they go, well, yep. maybe they were onto something. You know, it's like, <laughs> so, you know, where, where do you, where, where do you even go, you know, with that? Well, I don't know. And that's what, that's what's so terrifying is I think that there's a kind of absurdism that like, like here here's the weird thing about doing comedy in this environment which is that like it's these if these things weren't so serious they would be hilarious like uh, Armand Iannucci in The Death of Stalin does a very good job of drawing out the humor in real deadly serious situations and it's exactly the same thing that like if I made a reality TV show or even a or, or even a even a not a reality TV show. I mean, there's already a reality TV show. Like there are so many comedians who on TikTok and on Instagram who go to Trump rallies and just interview people. I mean, Jordan Klepper is a great example from The Daily Show. We'll interview people there and ask them basic questions. They will get completely wrong about like things that we understand. And I'm not talking about crazy like is the world flat or something like this but just like really basic questions about like well do you guys understand how the electoral college works or something like this and like nothing zero completely misunderstanding but like there if i wrote a satire of this situation it would be hilarious but living in this reality is terrifying and i feel like there's a weird distancing and i think that this this has to do with things i think that this is an example of the things you wrote about in present shock because the the distance, the removal that people have from their own lived experience is also very bizarre. Like they, the, the surprise, and I talk about this in the TikTok, the surprise that people have to being like, oh, wait, I'm getting arrested. Like I'm wait, hold on. What? Like I went, dude, you broke into the fucking Capitol bill. Like I went to the rally to restore sanity back in like 2000 and I think it was like 2011 or two or something like that. This was a giant thing that Jon Stewart had put on in, in uh, the, the Capitol mall and thousands of people were there. It was crazy. I climbed a tree to see, to get a better view of the, uh, of the uh, stage. Uh-huh. And I don't know if you, know anything about Capitol Police, but they do not put up with that stuff. No, I know like, they don't like that. They, Did they arrest so you? I'm in the, 
they 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 almost arrested me. So I'm uh-huh. up in the tree, and the next thing I hear is, "Get out of the tree! Get out of the tree!" And they're running up. There's eight of them, and they have M16s, and they're all pointed at me. And I'm like, "What the?" And I, I it's me and my buddy, and we jump out of the tree, and this guy shoves me up against the tree. And he's like, I, I go to put my hands in my pockets as I'm waiting there. He he points the gun at me. He's like, get your hands out of your pockets. I mean, the point I'm making is that these guys put up with no, they nothing. They do not put up with anything. Right. And so, like, the fact that you're getting arrested because you broke into the Capitol building. Like, right. how do you, how do you not right. understand this? And that's why I understand when, when, you know, whatever Republican senators or Trump, not that they're calling them hostages and all, but when they're saying uh, this wasn't what, this wasn't what you think it was. I, in some version of the, at least those people's reality, it wasn't. It was like they yes. were going on Jerry Springer, and then Jerry yes. Springer says, "Okay, we want you to kind of fight here and then do that." They were they were cosplaying something yes. to, to, to a large extent. The guy had friggin' horns, you know. He had yeah. horns. That's not the way you 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 seriously. Yeah. Jason overtake. Chansley, yeah, yeah the QAnon shaman. But yeah. everything. This is my my feeling lately, and it's partly because I've been getting a little bit more organic in my sensibilities. Maybe it's as I get closer to death and the worms are starting to circle or whatever it is. You know, I'm older now. But but I was thinking that our whole civilization, right? Yeah. Office work and buildings, the whole jobs, all the jobs that people go to are kind of bullshit jobs, right? They really yeah. kind of are. The Farming is real, right? Farming yep. is real and not the way we do it. Now we just, you know, f- kill the topsoil, turn the stuff over. We got like 12 yep. harvests left and it's the end of the planet, right? So, but doing real farming, some permaculture organic way and you just stick the seeds in there rather than mash the whole thing up and all that. Yep. That is what we've spent like a thousand years trying to get away from. It's like, yep. that's dirty work. That's the bad work. That's what the slaves do. And it's like, you get away from it until maybe you get rich and retire. And then you open, you get an organic garden, right? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Rich, yeah. Which is well, the like an inc- thing. But it's like, isn't every job a whole thing? This whole thing is a pseudo event. Is, is, yeah. is fake, is simulacra. I I, to, I totally agree with that. I mean, I really think so. There was uh th- this um. I mean, I really agree with Mark Fisher in Capitalist. Really, I'm not sure if you've read this book, but I I really agree yeah. with Mark Fisher. And I mean, look, this is a guy who is. I mean, I you, could, you I I almost re- reluctantly say you shouldn't believe everything he says because like he is a he is serious. And if you if you read the book, you'll understand what I mean. But I really believe what he says where it's like this whole thing is just a kind of weird kabuki theater that we're all sort of singing and dancing in. And David Graeber's correct where he says like the secret of the world is that we make it and we can just as easily make it differently. Right. That- Which is what I would, that's positive. That's so optimistic for a guy who's unfortunately dead now over. Unfortunately, I would argue, rest in peace, Dave stress. Yeah. You know, he was, he's almost really a, a victim of, of stress. Like, emailed with him a few times and I was just like, oh man, this guy's, he's worse than me in terms of being overwhelmed and doing too much. Tightly and, wound. Yeah. yeah. Tightly well, wound. Well, I dude. think it's, 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 you know, it's challenging because like, you know, you, you, the kind of work that you do, the kind of work that David did, the kind of work that Mark Fisher did. I mean, like you're, you're staring into the void. You really are. You're going, you're, you're, you're looking at a, a there's a lot of, um, 
there's a lot of bullshit, I think. And I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of bullshit and there's a lot of people who get rewarded by believing and talking and you make a lot mimicking more money bullshit. supporting yeah. wealthy people's yeah. bullshit than you do yes. pulling back the curtain and exposing yes. it as as either evil or entirely unnecessary. And I yeah. think that there's a heaviness. There's a there's a there's a there's a spiritual toll that I think comes from not only recognizing the the monster that you're dealing with or the whatever the void whatever you want to call it, but then doing battle with it. And then trying to be like I'm going to like I'm serious. Like I'm try- David Graeber when you read right. David Graeber's work and when you read Mark Fisher's work, especially David Graeber's, there is a I am trying to save the human race from itself right. is almost what comes across. And, and Mark Fisher's – Yeah, but they do it in that kind of – this is the only way I can say it, kind of verso books way. They yeah. do it in a kind of – you know, and God bless them all, but that kind of take no prisoners, I am serious, I am a yes. fucking abolitionist about this yes. stuff way. Yeah, there's and, very little joy. Right. There's not a lot of joy. But the alternative <laughs> – and that's why I love what you're doing. The alternative and I don't know if we're just fooling ourselves here, but the alternative is theater and comedy, right? Yes. So when when I would do my regular present shock talk, it kind of wouldn't work except on really kind of smart audiences who are already kind of Marxist or something. But yep. when I would do it in a stand-up way, I mean, I used to do this thing. I don't think it's even in the book. Maybe it is where I talked about the Real Housewives of Orange County. And I use this as, and I said, you know, I figured out everything I need to know about media and society watching The Real Housewives. You know, I, I'm great. a media theorist. I always look at communication. And I went, why is communication breaking down between these women? They're the same socioeconomic background, the same language, the same culture. And I realized what it is, is they have so much Botox in their yep, faces they that they can't make facial expressions that are consonant with the language coming out of their mouths. So it, I love it. it creates a kind of cognitive dissonance and distrust. You know, and I'll do yeah. that imitation of that. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear your daughter has cancer. You know, with their face yeah. trapped in a smile. And the other one thinks she's happy <laughs> that my kid, she, I don't believe her. And yeah. that, and the audience, half of them have Botox, you know, the, the, yeah. the older women, but they still, they get it. It makes yeah. it, it makes it somehow easier you know a spoonful of sugar really yeah. helps the well, medicine go down but but i think it's not it's not just that it's not just humor which is true but you the thing that i love about comedy and humor is that there's a real kernel of truth in what you're talking about and there's something that actually humanizes and 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 gets people to realize that they're like oh shit like the people who are controlling the entire world they're human and if they have botox and have a negotiation with the leader of another country the other leader could misunderstand their facial expressions right like that could actually happen <laughs> right like it, it's a real outcome and like the, the there's a the, the thing that's terrifying that should people should realize and, and this is what like like sometimes when i argue with with people in my family who are trump supporters they assign to this guy not only do they assign to him qualities that he doesn't have vis-a-vis normal people he doesn't they assign him qualities that he doesn't have like almost like he's a Greek hero or something. Like they're like he's going to clean it up, he's going to go do all this. Dude, he can't even bro, look at his family. Melania won't even let him in the car after her mother's, you know, passing. Like believe me, dude, he can't even negotiate his way in his own family. Like this is not the hero you think he is. But 
but the thing that they assign to these people are characteristics that they super don't have. And it's like, it's almost like a, like the, like tropes due to distance. We can project all of these things on all our hopes and wishes onto these people because we don't realize how flawed of human beings they really are. And that was, I remember Obama at one point where he was saying, you know, these people are, you know, acting like a mere Che Guevara or something. And they don't realize my policies are actually closer to Reagan. Yeah. It said it out loud. And it was like, dude, I remember it was like, this is guys great at branding. He's great at brand. Yeah. And yes, he was, uh, he was, he was, you know, uh, sophisticated and smarter than us and all that. No, no, but yeah. he was not what people projected onto him. Yeah. And not, not just from, not just from the left, but from the right. Like all these people are like, Obama's going to take your guns. And you're like, bro, right. so many guns got per. He didn't do anything. And so it's weird because you can reflect this back to people. Like I remember my, my, uh, I had an uncle who was like, man, Joe Biden is just going to let these cities, he's just going to let these people get crime ridden. And we're just, I'm like, you're talking about 1990s tough on crime, Joe Biden. Like, this is the guy you think is going to let all these, like, what are you talking? Like the, like he has no precedent for this. Like, like, believe me, nobody hates Joe Biden more than Democrats, dude. Like, yeah. nobody likes this guy. Okay, <laughs> like, believe me. Like, I get if there's anything that you want to accuse him of, I might agree with you, but he's not the guy you think you're accusing him of things that are totally unrealistic. The Biden and crime family, I think, yeah, <laughs> dude. I know, right? Like, yeah, like Hunter Biden's got to come on, dude. Like, what? I, and then the other thing is not not to to, to keep keep us in this like in in the in in the mud here, but like if people <laughs> always end up saying to me like, well, what about Hunter Biden? And I'm like, dude, he should go to jail if he did anything illegal. Like, I don't understand why this is a like there is a weird all of the you mentioned this in the book, basically, which is like a lot of our human. Um, there is so much technology that has been bent on trying to get our behavioral the, through behavioral economics to get our, our normal human switches, whatever you want to call them, to be used to fight each other and focus on a bunch of low level BS. And like, and I, I don't know. The real question is, I don't know how we get our way out of it, how we solve this problem, because I think that the people who are convinced, like plunging headlong and trying to assign to conspiracy, what I think is actually just incompetence. Like, I really think that the problem is worse than we think it is because it isn't. I'm a really fond of whoever the quote is from. Do not assign a conspiracy what can be explained by incompetence. Because I think, like, the problem is, like, we're just not that fucking smart. Right. And a lot of the things that we've put together are causing people to fight each other and focus on the wrong answers. And then we project answers that we wish did exist because they would be easier to solve and are easier to understand than the real actual complicated fact that the world is chaos and it's really complicated and we don't have that much control over it. And the things that we do control, we better focus on, but we're not focused on those. We're focused on the wrong problems and letting the wrong people control the things we can. That's my thinking. Well, and it's also this, um, and I get it, you know, people like Elon Musk and I'll talk about direct democracy and everyone can vote on everything and all that. But it's like, I kind of want less authority over things rather than more. You know, here's, let's just take, how about just 1 million people around the world and make them in charge of like the pot. Is 1 million enough? And then the other 99.99% of us can just like take care of each other and and chill. Chill. Well, be as just cooperative and nice to each other as you're, possible. You're arguing for for brave new world, basically. <laughs> you're you're arguing for world controllers. Well, not in so, brave new but, world, but 
experts or people, a million of them though. I'm not talking, there's a million of them. And it's yeah. not a fun job. I promise you, it's not a fun, or we rotate, do random voting. You know, you're in charge today. Oh no, no. You're so sorry. But it's like the fact that we are, we are supposed to have opinions on everything. So if you want to have, like, I got to have an opinion on the Afghanistan withdrawal policy. I got to have an, uh, I, I got to so do cooties. I don't know enough about Yemen, right? So Yemen was, I know that they own or, all the they they own all the cannabis stores in New York, the Yemenis. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe, I know that but much. but I mean, so I I'm I understand I'm supposed to know about you know the tens of thousands of people that are being killed in in Gaza. I got that, but what about the hundreds of thousands of people? And this is whataboutism. What about the hundreds of thousands of people that were killed just next door by American missiles? Yep. In Yemen, I don't understand that. I don't understand the Houthis. I don't understand. I don't understand all the players. I don't really understand the Sunnis either. I yeah. don't. Uh, who's exactly? And then I don't understand. If I did, what is the actionable result of that? Other than yeah, voting and, and for why would that, either and, Trump and, or Biden, right? Yeah, and why would that? And how does that affect your life? Like, I, I don't, I well, understand it affects their lives. I it mean, affects their lives for sure. And my I, money is going to kill children in other places. I don't yeah, like that. I, I mean, yeah, and I, I can appreciate that. Like, I think that there, I think that if you're, if you're someone who's conscientiously concerned with the well-being of others, I think it behooves you to want to go to your elected representatives and go, hey, I want you to go to whatever you go to in Congress and sincerely be like let's not hurt people who let's just not hurt them. Like that makes sense. You want to go out to a protest? I guess that's okay. The thing that I think is a little odd. And I, I mean, I've talked about this before is that there are people, there are homeless people in your own community, right? Like there are people, there are people outside right now who you could go, who you could, you could, you do have the power to help. And you're not helping those people. You're actually just concerned with people who right. are completely, right. you don't know them. You'll never know them. Exactly. They'll never know you. And like, if you were helping those people, it would take some of the stress off these giant top-down architectures that are so brittle as to need war in other places. In other words, if you're helping yes. your neighbor, we need less oil. If you're helping yeah. your neighbor, we need less political control over people in faraway places. There's less, well, you know, total angst. I would say also, and you you would have a real community, which is what the problem that a lot of the virtualization and, and parasocial relationships that we're creating are insinuating themselves into. A real community is the opposite of that. It's just, it's it, it, the United States through an accident of, not an accident, but through a series of choices in history have has gotten to a place where most people don't live in places in which they can have an organic community. And as a result, these corporate powers have been able to insinuate themselves right. into our lives. I think the thing that is strange to me is just the feeling that like you, just like, I, I know I reference Baudrillard a lot, but it's really amazing how much he saw coming that like even from simulacra and simulation, the transparency of evil, the Gulf War did not happen. Like paradox, all these other books that he he wrote, the um you know the system of of objects, like all this stuff was really prescient in a way that I think is is explains a lot of the world right now. That what what you witness when you see people who are protesting, I think Israel Palestine or you know many of these many of the even I would say I would go to so as far as to say probably even a lot of the Yemenis although maybe I'm going to get some uh, backlash from making this comment 
I really think that a lot of that is a simulation of outrage or a simulation of protest where it's like you, you could actually go help people in your real community, but instead you'd rather simulate being somebody who does care and then you don't actually have to do anything. Well, there's multiple like, things going on. On the one hand, there's terrific social justice, uh, uh, you know, aggravated social justice please, and trying to move a government. On the other, there's a personal need to feel connected to something real. And the killing of babies is as real. It's real. You know, there's with everybody in America, all of us white little puffy people, we've got no sense of indigeneity anymore. White little puffy You know what I mean? We don't have indigeneity. So we kind of, our our, our intersectionalism and our our identity politics substitutes for that lack of a sense of indigeneity, of realness right yes if everything is fake at least find where in the exact spectrum i am i identify with you i can wear your flag your color your thing i could be an ally and not get yelled at now but the the, the strange thing is this that so i'm i i think like you i am in a, a quest to return to the real and to help yeah. bring people back to the real you know i feel a little mosaic at that point you know i don't want to bring people to canaan the next promised land i want to bring people to the desert right yeah. where we actually are here we are you know just be real but when when and many people want the real but most of us who are striving for the real are striving for to get back I feel like the GPS when it says return to your the, the route to get <laughs> yeah. back in the story. They want to get back in the story that we understood, the cause and effect story where I could do this thing and get to that thing and that. And I have a feeling the real, not just because of the internet, but the real real may ultimately be storyless as well. You know, there, there is no, it's like, like story. If you want to have sex with a story, oh, you're going to get that woman. You're going to have sex and you're going to come, right? Yeah. You want to have sex for real? It's this tantric in between. I don't know who yeah. I am. I don't know who you are. Everything's yeah. melting. That's not, is confusing. It's, it's confusing and chaotic and you have to be present for it and it could hurt you and things right. could go wrong. I think that there's a there's a real desire. No, I'm serious. Like I yeah. think there's a real desire. Well, Gen Z talk, constantly talks about authenticity, right? right. And like I, I I've had a lot of people have reacted to my content by saying like you you seem it seems you like I feel like I'm walking down the street having a real conversation with you. Like that's why this this work. And I think it's true. I think that there's because my brain is doing this all the time. Like I'm not I'm not faking anything that I'm putting on, and I have no goal except to share. I'm trying to work these thoughts out myself, and I think that a lot of people watching are i think you're writing smacks of this exact kind of authenticity which is like oh doug if doug was alone in a room he would be <laughs> he, would, he would be thinking right. about this i'm thinking this stuff. out loud but then you know but but yeah. hopefully refining you know but, but, <laughs> refining but, the ideas for publication but, but the thing is there's a in order to exist in that space you have to be willing to be vulnerable in a way that our world punishes to be honest yeah. Like I think that people would. Brene Brown uh, had a quote. Who's someone I never, I never quote. But Brene Brown, she did this study of vulnerability, right? And in the first time that she did this study, uh, she did it with women. And the idea was that like you feel more connected with your life when you end up becoming a more vulnerable person. 
And somebody told her, listen, you need to do this study with men. She didn't do it with men when she first started. When she started to do it with men, she realized very quickly that men are not vulnerable because they get punished really quickly if they end up becoming vulnerable. <laughs> and, and I exactly. think that any man, any man listening to this probably understands it. So like the thing that I think is kind of amazing, and and just to get back to this, like the point of me saying this is like Gen Z is obsessed with authenticity, that authenticity and vulnerability, the ability to live in a moment without being sucked into a narrative that you're playing yourself into in your head is really challenging and difficult because there are bad things that can happen because of it. And I think I think not only that, but there is a there's an if you listen to the existentialists, meaning is what you create, right? There is no point to life. There is nothing that you do. You have to decide what it is. And I feel like there are so many available narratives that'll give you an identity, tell you who you are, all this kind all these kinds of things. I don't, I don't know if it's possible, but I think the hard work is really trying to figure out, apart from all of that, who am I? What do I like to do? What is my life about? What do I care about? What are the decisions I'm going to make, and am I going to assign meaning to them? That's, a, that's, a, that's hard work, actually, that you have to wake up and do every day. And I think that human beings have evolved to have stories that tell us these things so we don't have to do that hard work. And now in right. a world in which a lot of those, like like Leotard says, ma- uh, a meta narratives have all been destroyed. And there's a there's a almost Hegelian other side to everything that we see now. Like the internet is a context destroying machine. Anything that you feel like you're going to take and feel like you're able to grab in order to feel good about yourself is can be taken from you so quickly with the exception of the fact that they're like if there are children dying i'm on the right side of that like that's the one thing and even if there aren't children dying you're going to project project that there are children dying to justify the the narrative that you've bought into that's what i i think i think actually that that existentialism is a way through this but i think it's i think it's i think it's difficult and i don't think that there's a I don't think that there's been a, a book or a direction written that is an easy answer to any of this. That's well, what I but, think. And I think and I think well, nobody's going to do the work anyway. <laughs> you know, but Jesus kind of did it. Buddha kind of did it. You know, if you get stuck in the existential despair and all that, what can you do? Have compassion for others. Everybody's in pain. Try to help them metabolize it through. Uh, uh, by just being there yeah, as an open but nervous Doug, system. How do for I them? become rich and famous by doing that? Ah, yeah, right, exactly, exactly. That's always the conversation I end up in with the rich people. It's like, okay, how do I do that and make a billion dollars? Yeah, right? I don't understand. How can I have? How can I have? You know, six houses across different continents in a private jet when I'm doing those things? You actually, you 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 can't. Yeah. <laughs> Too bad. You really, Sorry. you can't, you can't, not only can you not, but I would argue if you were actually doing that, you would not want those things. No, I think that's, I think that's a good point. I think that you probably would not want those things, which means I'm not an enlightened person because I want half a million followers in a private jet so I can go out to sold out comedy shows around the United States. You don't want a private <laughs> jet. You really wouldn't want to do it that way. You would rather, wouldn't you rather them organize those shows around the United States so you can travel 20 miles in a car and do the next show and 20 miles. So you're not getting jet lagged. So you're not doing that's that. That's probably true. Actually, that's probably true. What I would prefer is to get a tour bus and then yeah. it would be fun to hang out Electric. with all my buddies. Yeah. It'd solar be solar powered, powered tour bus. Tour yeah, bus. Yeah. I think you just came up with my next, this is my tour. Dude. Right. It's going to be the bread and a pool table or whatever bre- it is that you <laughs> Midwesterners like. Solar tour. 
Bowling alley. That's what Midwesterners like. Could you imagine a bus with a bowling alley? That'd be great. That's even better than George Clinton's bus. Yeah, <laughs> dude. Yeah, we have you. I just want to. I want to ask you just out of curiosity. Have you spent much time in the Midwest? Yeah, yeah. A lot. You know, Cleveland. That counts as the Midwest, does it? Or is oh, not Cleveland's quite? definitely in the Midwest, man. Cleveland's the Midwest. Yeah. As much as my Michigander butt hates Ohio, I have to admit they are in the Midwest. Cleveland, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Uh, yeah. Yeah, some it's Chicago. Just, more cities, I, though, than... Uh, yeah, not to, not, to, not to derail or turn down this conversation, uh, but I think it's rather interesting because I think the Midwest is actually... It's as a, there's a really good book called Midwest Futures by John Crispin, and he does a very good job of talking about how the Midwest was effectively a corporatized territory from the beginning, almost. And it's very interesting he's because... Right. He's yeah. right. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's fascinating because I think that a lot of the, uh, my, my TikTok handle is at Brendan freaking lemon, but yeah. my, I, my name on it is Midwest existentialism. And a big reason is because I think that there, there is a, I, I'm, have you heard of Midwest emo, the style of music? There is a, emo, there is but- a, yeah, there's an existential nihilism that runs through the Midwest that is almost, I think, unique in the United States. I think that all people in small towns deal with a different type of existentialism, being sort of colonized by larger corporate forces that are di- impersonal, different, all the you know, indifferent, all this stuff. But the Midwest feels almost uniquely this way in many ways, and I feel like you you almost have to grapple with a lot of very heavy ideas because you you sort of don't have another option. <laughs> like yeah. you're you're like you're it's, it's either watch Netflix and go to the local fast food place every day or like i've gotta you know i've gotta get out of here and read something that that provokes something and i feel like the 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 the, it's interesting to me because i would just i would wonder if the reason i've asked if you've been to the midwest is just simply because i feel like there are so many people who could benefit from i think a lot of what you're talking about i will tell you though i i had the opposite experience of the midwest whenever i went to the midwest the opposite experience of what i expected so I think of it as I'm on one of the coasts. I even was aware of this as a kid, you know, living in Queens. I'm on the coasts with the corporations and all that stuff, right? But my experience on the coast of supposedly corporate reality was I knew our deli man. I knew our kosher butcher. I knew the shoemaker. I knew all the things. I go to the Midwest and it's like Waffle House. Oh, yeah. uh, Cracker Barrel. Cracker Barrel, buddy. And it was – but but – it was more corporatized. It was more yes. franchised. Yes. It was yes. more that. Yes. And I was like, oh, they're living in a more corporatized America in the middle where yes. we think of it as, oh, everybody's like, you know, making, I don't know, corn or something. But yeah, so much, there's so much less sense of community. It's, it's almost, I, I've written about this a lot, but it's, it's more like a colon, functions almost like a colonized region in a yeah. strange way. Like it's almost like it was colonized by the coasts and it still functions as a kind of like Ireland in 1910 or something like that. Right. Like and they without, look back obviously to, without the troubles. Right. And they look back to the era when it was the coal mining family yeah. colonizing them and forcing them to go into caves and whatever and get black lung better yeah. than being colonized by some, you know, Chinese and New York place to make solar panels in a factory. Uh, yeah. You know, it, so they're looking back, but it's not original. It's not, 
you know, and I guess there were, you know, that's the main thing I want to do with my retirement savings. And I've got this guy, he won't let me do it. He's like, oh, you can't do that. There's, there's, uh, uh, <laughs> is this uh, guy your financial advisor? Or yeah, is that the guy? Yeah, that, the okay. financial advisor guy. Who I'm just runs, making like, sure know, that it's not just uh, a dude some on guy. the street. No, yeah. like TIAA craft where professors, we put our money in these things and they want you to put it into things. Even if you call it the environmental fund, it's the S&P fund with like three bad companies removed. It's yep. not. They're like, oh, but you're in the social justice fund. I'm like, this is not social justice. This is still, <laughs> this is like those same things. It's, it's, you know, Microsoft and Apple and Amazon and every company I, I critique. But there's like farmland something. So you can, basically, you can invest in, um, it, it's a system where you invest in small family farms at a very low interest rate so they can get, and he's like, well, you can't do that. I'm like, I think I can. Um, but there are, there are still family farms a few there's still a movement to you know uh, if we could promote small family ownership of land where they want to actually preserve the topsoil rather than you know suck it dry and depend on Monsanto for a new drug you know yep. to grow crap on crap uh it, it it can be done so there is a there is i think there was and still is a midwest that's not cracker barrel yeah, and this is it's. You should really check out John Christmas' book, uh, okay. uh, Midwest Futures, because he does talk about about kind of some of this this concept. I think it's strange because you really identify it. You do a very good job. Your latest book, uh, you know, the uh, the survival of the richest, I think does a very good job of drawing a lot of different uh, sources of information. Um, resources i would say together in a rather elegant way to describe i think the sort of the situation we find ourselves in because i think that one of one of the things i did want to talk to you about before we run out of time mm. is it's it's it, it is interesting because you identified it not just in apocalypto but then in the final chapter of present shock but also you talk about it a little bit in the new book which is that there is a an almost Millenar millenarian, mil, mil, uh, yeah, millenarian desire for the to bring about the eschaton. As you were yes. talking about, to bring about there is a there is a religious, for, like almost righteousness to the destruction of something that 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 people who are proponents of specifically, I would say, January sixth, the people who I've who have been arguing with in the comments so much. Uh, want to bring about. And I think that they're not r wrong in this weird way that like there does need to be a kind of ending of whatever it is the tech class of billionaires operates under the delusion of this nonstop uh, growth that can just continue going. There has to be an end to their to that kind of thinking in order for us to go to the next thing. But I don't know, like you, you're very critical of accelerationism. I, I don't know that accelerationism is the answer. I do think that there are contradictions at the heart of capitalism that cause it eventually to have right. some type of crisis. Who knows what will we, come? Yeah. We need a reckoning. Yeah. You know, I don't know that the great awakening is the reckoning that, that, that we need. It's certainly not no. the, the tech bro reckoning that they're looking at, you know, is to rise above the chrysalis of matter as pure consciousness before the planet explodes or, you know, yeah. to get off or to, 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 you know, and I understand they look at all the other humans as sort of the larval state 
you know, yes. and they are the flies that get the wings that actually go off and 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 yeah. harvest and and, and colonize Gr- new places. Gross. That one doesn't <laughs> work for me, not in the short term anyway, or the medium yeah. term. Maybe the super long term. So thousands of years from now, we have warp drives and you know send a few scouts out to Alpha Centauri or, you know, yeah, whatever. It doesn't seem to be, yeah, there doesn't seem to be any, it's correct. It's like, there's not, there, there are all of their, there is a kind of escape velocity. They all want to reach in some way that to, to continue the party. And I think like, it's weird because <laughs> we're entering an age in which the writing's on the wall. Like the music is slowing. Like we know that. And the party's coming to an end, but like, we're not really sure how or why or in what way. And like that kind of thing is really terrifying in many types of ways. And I think right. that, the end to their reality is going to spell a kind of doom. And I, hopefully it won't be, you know, but I can see, see reading your book. I can see why there are people who are projecting big C conspiracies on all kinds of things. Like not obviously conspiracies exist by definition, but like I don't buy into like, it's so strange to believe that there are big C conspiracies going on because people are quite frankly, just not this well organized. Like in oh, any right. kind of, Even you, you talk saw to how them. We, you talk saw how we Musk pulled out of Afghanistan. Yeah. How are we going to, exactly. you know, put, put nanobots in, in a, in, in syringes that go all over the planet. We couldn't even pull out of one fucking country very well. Yeah, no, like, they it, can't. They're, they're, they're shit for brains, these people, but, yeah. but I, I, I totally, but it's certainly on the one hand, it's very comforting to believe that somebody's in charge and that there is this conspiracy that, you know, there's some great reset or thing that that's going to happen. But I'll tell you the, the, if you believed that the world really is going to kind of end, then wouldn't you sort of want to be there (laughs) when it it happens? It's like (laughs) worst case, at least if it's like, well, I'm like, all right, I'm 60. So it's like, well, we better get this show on the road, the road. if I'm going to be alive <laughs> for the thing. It's like, come on. Wait a minute. Wanna... You mean I got to die before the world ends? <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, what? it's like, no. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I think that's part of it. You know, it's like, let's, let's, let's bring it on already. And it's also because of the whole present shock problem and we're yeah. out of the story and all. It's like, well, at least we can get the one big story. I don't know what my life is. I don't know what marriage is. I don't know if I believe in God, but I'm going to be here for the grand for the end, finale. The end of the world. Yeah, Patton Oswalt right. has, has a great bit that I love. He's a comedian who's absolutely super talented. And he goes, if, if you're here for the, for the apocalypse, you have the greatest story to tell in the afterlife. Like it's just right. it's so much cooler. Oh, totally. Everyone's going to want to hear. Car accident. How'd yeah. you die? Fire ants. How'd you die? How'd I die? In the motherfucking apocalypse. <laughs> I know, but that's going to be a very popular line. I mean, there's going to be eight billion, you know, people who can say it. So, you know, this car is true. There will, will be actually quite, be fewer at that point. Quite, oh, quite a lot of people. You strangled? People. You were strangled? Ooh, come, <laughs> come on, Morris. This guy was strangled. <laughs> Morris, you know, it, it, it makes sense. Whatever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have you over for dinner here in the afterlife. <laughs> <laughs> but I I understand that. But uh, assuming we don't want that, you know, the real problem here is not, and I tried to say that in present shock too, the real problem is not the present shock so much as our addiction to narrative. So it's like, yes. okay, we've exposed that the narratives aren't real. The stories aren't real. There's no beginning, middle, and end. Everything just kind of is and rolling along and straight. It's, it's becoming comfortable with that. 
And how do you be comfortable with that, with no ending? No, the Titanic is not sinking. Sinking, we're just, yeah. We're just going along here. There's no resolution. There's no, right. and that's why, like, referencing the Coen brothers, I think, is so interesting because I do think that there's a there's a sublime truth to the idea that there are lots of stories without resolutions. That's a more, you talk about it a little bit in the book, I think, which is yeah. this kind of experimental theater almost where like, yeah. you, like Brecht or like there's, there's this kind of, yeah, it's just Brecht things and sometimes David just Lynch end. And yeah. Yeah. It just Maybe goes. There's a, yeah. Maybe instead of Chekhov's gun, not, you know, going off, it just is on, stage and then it never goes off and then the well, play goes ends off, and- but he fails to kill himself oh no he does yeah. at the very end he does yeah. he succeeds he finally succeeds you know it would be more it's actually more check off if he fails if it's like ah he grazed himself ah the fool you know all right <laughs> let's just sit here you know well, that'd be the more beckett thing did you kill yourself no it didn't work today all right <laughs> try again tomorrow all right same place same time do I love that there's a I love that all the absurdist references we're making back and forth like <laughs> yeah but it's like well existentialism gets to absurdism in comedy but it makes it tolerable because all right so the world we don't understand the world there is no meaning of oh well, but there's 200 people sitting in a room laughing together all laughing about together. this you know what and that's and, the whole point and you know what life isn't so bad right. like <laughs> you know ha- whatever we've been have a drink or don't whatever you feel like doing you know shake hands with your neighbor like it's not that big of yeah. a deal actually it was funny yeah i was reading uh uh, uh bruce sterling the science fiction writer you know kind of libertarian crazy wonderful guy uh, uh he spent a lot of time in eastern europe and he was writing on one of these bulletin boards he was saying you know i think more people need to experience you know what it what it's like to live in a kind of soviet block country where the people are like they've really given up on the big, right? But they've learned then how to have a different kind of camaraderie and fun together, you know, around yeah. the table sitting, you know, there's a, uh, there's something, there's something to be said for Small that. But it's, moments that are actually yeah. more meaningful. I really yeah. think because you know, what's an underlying, an under, an underlying theme, I think to some of your writing, uh, especially in present shock has been, this this uh this kind of dopamine addiction that I feel like we're all everyone has. Like I've decided yeah. this month to try to go on a dopamine cleanse, so I'm not scrolling, I'm not uh streaming anything. I'm like I'm I am listening to audio, but I'm trying to avoid doing anything I would normally yeah. do to get a dopamine hit. And it's uh really hard. <laughs> like it's really hard. Oh, you You're, know what helps? Your... Do a do a mushroom trip. Yeah. If you do a real mushroom trip, it becomes a lot easier to then not, you know what I mean? It's sort of like you do something like that. You don't want to eat meat or something. There's a interesting because I, I that's a, what I did. And I'm, I did, I'm totally off this shit now. All off the dopamine. Well, I should, maybe I'll do that coming up next week. I did an, I did ayahuasca last year and that was a <laughs> uh, pretty, pretty wild three day yeah. retreat. And it was like, I mean, my head went to another dimension, you know? So then I then I came back and I'm like, man, maybe these conspiracy theorists are onto something, dude. Like- <laughs> <laughs> They're onto something. They're onto something. But but the the object of the game then is to is to learn to I hate to use the word like tolerate, but at least at the beginning is to learn to tolerate an utter lack of narrative. It's not nihilist. Mm-hmm. It's not even existentialist. It's just, I mean, can't you be the 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 
the the happy nihilist the the it's not like you're happy nihilist sounds like you're like dexter no, 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 or something this is this is exactly no that. but this is but this is john marmish's point in his book laughing at nothing which is that there is no point there's no point and so you can create whatever you want so my you know the 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 next the absurd that you can appreciate like there's a i'm a big fan of um of hp lovecraft the the horror writer uh-huh. from the early 20th century he invented the concept of cosmic horror right but it's interesting because rick and morty the tv show is almost a cosmic humor like it oscillates so quickly between terror and humor but there is so much humor in this weird like abyss nothing nihilism that we're all running away from like you even mentioned ernst becker i think and i forget which book but the denial of death and how mm. you know we're all attempting to amass these fortunes in order to prove our living selves and 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 run away from death but like the strange thing about it is like if you just accept the idea that you're like this is just absurd and it's weird that we're here there's something really funny about that and you can start appreciating the humor and life around you like there's but a it's real a great something thing. beautiful we're, yeah we're conscious I mean, like, and I don't I don't want to be in a Black Mirror episode. I don't want somebody to download my intelligence in a computer for all eternity. Like I, I think it's I think it's a no. lot better that we have a, a finite amount of time yep. that we have to make the best of. Exactly. And even if there's an infinitesimal possibility or only an infinitesimal small possibility that there's something after you die. What if there is? Yeah. No. And you know what? Be- it might not be that great. So you should probably try to have a great time now. <laughs> now, right. It could be like, this could be the good part. That could be like the, oh my God, yeah, dude. The waiting on lines and stuff, like in uh, the Defending Your Life movie. You're just waiting on lines and <laughs> just should be so, getting processed. What? It sounds so disappointing. I, I, think, I, I think if there's an afterlife, it's probably pretty decent. If you were a decent person, uh, yeah. let's hope. So do you make enough money just being funny to live? Oh man, what are you my what are you my my in-laws? Jesus. <laughs> I don't I don't. Yeah, I run a comedy club here in uh in uh in New York and we do okay, but So you've I got mean, meta on your profession. You've got yeah. you've leveled up. You're a rentier. I've leveled of, up. Of so other comics pay you to be on your stage and to try to be funny themselves. Yeah, well, we have other comics don't pay, but I uh you know, we sell tickets cuz we do a lot of great shows. And um, so we. It's oh, so the it's sunflower. not pay to play. That's good. Yeah, it's you're, not pay to not, play. Because there are these places in New York. I don't know if you've heard oh, of them. Yeah. I won't even For talk sure. about it. They're kind of pyramid scheme comedy improv Completely. places. Completely. Oh my God. It's such a scam. Nothing personal. Yeah. I'm sure it's not a scam. I'm sorry. I didn't say that. No, they're cashing um, in on is. your dreams of comedy glory. That's right. what they're cashing it's in like on. When I was doing rock, you know, I actually played with a real band with, with, with Psychic TV, you know, going around. And what I realized after my, you know, whatever, four or five years in the rock and roll business is. The only one making money is Guitar Center. Oh right? yeah, dude. everybody. <laughs> everybody else is working to support their their. I mean, yep. you know, unless you get to like Hall and Oates level or whatever it all is. All the people, everybody, all the people who yeah. made money in the Gold Rush were selling pickaxes. Man, it's exactly the same. It's like yeah. very similar. Yeah. So no, we, we we it's called the Sunflower Arcade Lounge. It's in the West Village. We run uh, shows like many nights of the week. It's a lot of fun. I um I've been How doing do comedy get, for do you. 
you own a building? You rent a sp- How does this happen? We have, we have what, what yeah, do you exactly. Do? We have we have a relationship with uh with the like the building, basically the the venue owner. And so we run out of the basement of that place. It's really cool. We've got like a lot of a lot of amazing comedians have come through and done it. I've done comedy for like 20 years. I started when wow. I was in, in in high school. I've got two uncles who are stand-up comics and just fell in love with it and continue to do it. And uh, I, I, you know, it's weird because I probably, I probably could be, I, I mean, obviously the goal is to become more famous and to be running a lot of this stuff. I think it's been challenging a little bit for me because I think that I'm still, even though I'm this far into comedy, working out my own identity <laughs> on stage a little yeah. bit because I'm a complicated guy. And like, I, because right. I read Doug <laughs> Rushkoff and John Baudrillard and Albert Camus and like all these guys. And I'm kind of an existential person, but I also enjoy a dick joke from time to time. So right. <laughs> it is tricky. It is tricky. I mean, some people have done it though. There was that the guy with the caveman show on Broadway. He kind of went, what was that guy? Uh, he went there. Bo Burnham has been really good at sort of Bo pushing Burnham through, is but, amazing, but he stuck with the sort of the, the impact of digital technology on the way, on the way we think. So he, it was kind of tightly focused at least for a while. And he's music. He's doing musical, frigging musical comedy, man. The guy yeah. is, he can't be stopped. Like he's a good actor. He's a good director. I mean, he th- like that movie he yeah. made. Eighth uh, grade. Was, eighth grade was yeah. fantastic. Like he's a, he's a musician. His, all of his music's amazing. I mean, I started following him when he first started writing music on YouTube because I was like, this guy's really good. And he's but tall, it does show, so you can't beat yeah, him. But he's native to this space, right? He's native yeah. to the present shocky digital space. And that yes. gives me certain faith that, okay, you know, Nature, nurture, whatever it is, you could be raised in the simulacrum and still see it for what it is, right? Yeah, I think that's true. Like, I think that part of the reason that Gen Z is so checked out or whatever, like, I think that the the millennial generation, the gen, my generation, is strange because I, I'm sort of a you know I can I, I almost identify more with Gen X than I do with gen, you know Gen Z. Yeah, and because. Gen X people like we grew up in a similar like you and I grew up in a similar culture, which is like magazines, prints, like there were there was a certain amount MTV, like there was a certain amount that was accessible in a very particular way. And I think that the odd thing is like that that narrative you're talking about, that America, that meta narrative that started to fall apart in my generation. I think that Gen millennials feel betrayed in a way like i feel like oh i bought a bill of a bill of sale for a bunch of goods that weren't what i was given like i'm not gonna probably most people are millennials are gonna have trouble affording a house like we have all this college debt that we're working our asses off to to pay off like we bought into the narrative and i think Mm. gen z's now grown up in a world where that type of fractured narrative and all of the simulation and simulacra and hyper reality they grew up in all of that stuff and they're just like yeah this just just sucks i'm not gonna do this this doesn't seem like a good way to do anything and i kind of envy them but i almost weirdly can't relate to them because i feel like i'm inherently like i want to believe you know what i mean like i want to believe the narrative so bad except it's like not true and i it just it, it it it's a gulf that i wish i could I, I wish I could bridge, but I think Bo Burnham was. I think he was a native of that space. He grew up right in it. Yeah, 
And there, it it is hopeful too that I'm seeing. You know, um, Josh, the producer of this show, does something called Digital Void, which they do it at Caveat Lounge on you know NBC oh, yeah, I know or whatever. Yeah, and they do this every month. They do an event, and they basically have like smart people with powerpoints, kind of doing stand up mimetic analysis of things, and people are coming out. I mean, you do shows; people are coming to. Even post COVID, whatever it is, they're coming out, and they—I think—they understand that there's something to be had with live, connected yes. humans in a room. Yeah, I think that's going to be the next thing. Actually, I think that there's going to be a wave of people wanting to go th- see things in person. I think that there there's a desire to feel connected to a real performance and to a real performer, and not just witness things virtually. I really do think that that's going to be a we, me, me and my business partners talk about this a lot. I think that there's going to be a a major shift in this live theater. I think it's going to make a comeback. I think that people are, there's going to be a number probably in the next five years. I think there's going to be a number of very big plays that are not just like Hamilton, but just a, a bunch of plays that are not spectacle productions, mm-hmm. but productions of meaningful, interesting theater that people will want to go see that, that, that the creators of which will probably be like, no, we're not going to produce a film about this. You have to go see it live or it has to be produced in your community. Sorry, that's the way it's going to be. And I think that that's actually going to happen. Yeah. Now I can see that, you know, and be, because you could see the crazies are already kind of gearing up there. They're, it's weird. I just saw, um, who was it? Uh, Alex Jones and Elon Musk on a YouTube yeah. together. Amazing. Saying, Team Human. Yeah, good God. They came up with, they said they came up with Team Human. Um, But Team Human, you know, that we're on Team Human now, not Team Machine, we're Team Human. And talking about the same stuff we are, in a sense, but from crazy land. But, but, you know, it's, 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 it's Naomi Klein's doppelganger mirror thing going on. God, that book is so good. Isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it? It's amazing. But it's to see, for her to admit it too, that you get lost in it. She got lost in that. Um, yeah. You know, it's the same stuff you're talking about that you get lost in. You don't know where you are. You can't have your bearings anymore. And there's your mirror. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. Um, am I that crazy also? Um, but I think if you know, you're was, on a I think if you're yeah. on a YouTube show with Alex Jones, you are that crazy. <laughs> right. I guess. I mean, luckily I'm not. I mean, I'm not. Though I was invited to Bannon. I, I talked about that a lot, whether or not oh to do it. Oh my gosh, what? Yeah, to do Bannon because he liked Team Human. He was reading yeah. from the book, but he likes it because it, from his perspective, it exposes the great conspiracy of the technocrats yeah. yep. against the humans. Look at them. They're yep. going to leave us behind. And that's like, no, you're, I, you're supposed to laugh at them, not take them seriously. Right. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Doug, uh, this was great, man. I appreciate yeah. you having me on. Sure, I appreciate you coming on, and we should do. We should play together. I should come to uh, your space. What's it called? Everyone should go there. What's it called? Sunflower Arcade Lounge. Sunflower yeah. Arcade Lounge. It's not every night that you have certain nights there. Yeah, yeah, we have. We have. If you go, if you just Google it, you'll see that we got a lot of great reviews. I'm really happy. People have really been uh, very positive. The, the experience has been good, which is good because we like try really hard to make it like a unique. Like this is a you dig it too. It's got a kind of punk rock like DIY vibe, which yeah. is really which is really cool. And it, it's it's getting great reviews. People love it. You can go check it out on Google, and then uh, it'll go straight to the Eventbrite, so you can just pick up tickets there. Cool. Like, yeah, we should do a out, team but, human there. Dude, come out, man. We'd love to have it. Like, it's cool. Yeah. It's got a backdrop of all these arc- old arcade games from the 80s. 
like oh, the perfect. whole thing is a real the whole thing is a real 80s vibe down there so it's like a uh, it's excellent. supposed to f- it's supposed to feel like uh like oh man i stepped back in time a little bit and like this thing that doesn't you know it doesn't exist anymore because people kids today like this is so strange but like kids today like didn't grow up i was like the last generation that grew up with arcade actual arcades where like you right. wanted to go play video games you had to go get a five dollar bill from somebody and then go yeah. to a dark room at the mall or like Space somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And then like go hang out and play video games or what? And then watch other kids play video games too. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. I was a joust. I was a joust kid. We got joust, man. We got Galaga. Yeah. We've got joust. We have defender. We've got uh, I joust was a great one. Yeah. Uh, it was we, one of the first got, um, games designed by a woman. And really? you had a flap, you hit a button to flap yeah, the wings. Flap the wings. To, yeah. 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 And then you had to like hit other people on top. This is the best. The yeah, game you're was so much fun. on flying dragons. Yeah. Gorgeous. Pe- people don't know, man. People forget. All right. But they <laughs> but we will we will inform them. We will orient them to the truth of the video game reality in which we live. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you for being on Team Human. And we'll see you very soon. Thanks, Doug. And thank you for being on Team Human. Our guest today was comedian and existential Midwesterner Brendan Lemon. You can find him at Brendan Freaking Lemon on TikTok, brendanlemon.com for an outdated website, or just go straight to the Sunflower Arcade Lounge in Greenwich Village and see him and his friends live. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human. Our last best hope for peeps. It's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 